Jacob, thank you for joining us today. I think that um, we've become, I think, I know we've become very excited about what you're doing at GenVid um, as we've spoken with you over the last couple of months. And I think that not that many in our audience are familiar with all the things that you are doing. So maybe if you could just start us off by explaining what GenVid is and what problem you're trying to solve in media and video games. Awesome. Sure. Thank you. Happy to happy to be here and thank you for hosting me. I see some people I know in the attendee list. So hello there. Um, <laughs> so uh, I'll start with my background. A very long time game industry. Uh, I spent uh, a decade at Square Enix, uh, which is the Japanese video game publisher that makes Final Fantasy and Dragon Quest and Tomb Raider and all those titles. A very unique kind of position there. Um, my title in Japanese was called Shachotsuki, which means attached to president. And I was literally in the president's office uh, leading worldwide business development and strategy for the CEO directly. The previous CEO, Yoichi Wada, and the current CEO, Yosuke Matsuda, uh, were both my bosses for a very long time. I did all of the BD for the holdings company. I led the new technologies uh, in specific cloud gaming, so being able to play games over streams. We started doing R&D research on it in around 2009-10, and uh, I ended up putting together a division called Shinra Technologies, named after the evil corporation from Final Fantasy VII, uh, which we spun off into a subsidiary, and um, I ran for many years. Uh, in fact, my current team at Genvid is my former team from Square Enix, so all the co-founders, all of our early employees came from working with us for a very long time on game streaming. So we come from having spent, you know, years and years on what does it mean to create new formats of entertainment? What does it mean to create experiences that are built to be streamed? And this company, Genvid, which I started about five years ago, um, is about creating tools, technologies, and services around interactivity over video stream. So being able to play and affect the video that you're watching in real time. Uh, and doing so in a way that the entire community can get together in impact and change. Uh, we've done a lot of big projects, um, stuff with Twitch, um, and the most recent one with Facebook that we're going to see today with Rival Peak. But we just have many developers worldwide building new games and content on top of our tech stack. And maybe if you could just from a very high level, just because people are probably familiar with things like Bandersnatch, on Netflix. And when you say interactive video or video that can be changed, I know you're talking about something far beyond what Netflix has done, but could you just maybe delineate the two experiences for us in terms of what they're doing versus what you're doing and what's different about the two? Absolutely. And, and thank you. So if you look at Bandersnatch, for example, you're taking pre-recorded video on demand content and you're allowing for the user to choose their own adventure, as it was. Every time that you play Bandersnatch, it's kind of your journey, and you go and you change and you inspect as you want. It's not live. It will never actually change. And at the end of the day, there's a predetermined outcome. What we focus on are what we call miles, massive interactive live events. This is millions of people interacting with the same piece of content. And when they affect it, they change it for everyone else, which means that it is inherently live. Think about, even at the most base example, going to a stadium and cheering for your favorite team and having that moment that you're participating with, and then being able to not just cheer, but also to affect the game that you're watching and be part of it, be a participant in that live content. That's what we're focused on. Can you tell us a little bit, just to kind of drive home the point now on what you're doing, tell us a little bit about Rival Peak, which has had, you know, I, I see it as kind of a breakthrough for, for you guys and has had massive engagement on Facebook. Can you talk about um, the game, the experience, and what you're trying to do there? Absolutely. So let's take a step back and I'll talk about how we got to where Rival Peak is, and then I'll go into what Rival Peak is today. We started developing tools for game creators many years ago. And around 2018, a developer in Eugene, Oregon called Pipework Studio 
started prototyping a new game that they called Project Eleusis on top of our tech stack. This had a bunch of AI characters on an island similar to Lost running around, and the audience could send them knives or send them mushrooms or send them different items that would help them survive this Lost-like experience. Uh, and we were really taken by this. We thought, well, what if we had an interactive version of Lost or an interactive version of Survivor that we use these characters for? And we went and we showed it to a variety of different partners. And the one that really picked up on it was Facebook, where they said, well, our platform is perfect for this. We've got live streams and we've got instant games and we've got VOD. We could build an entire show around it. So in the fall of 2019, we started working with Facebook on what this kind of experience would be like. And it became uh, this show that I'm going to show you, Rival Peak, which is live on Facebook right now. Um, there are about two more uh, days left in the live competition. Um, and the way that I would think about it is Big Brother, but you, the audience, are making the decisions for it. So awesome. uh, can, can you see my screen? We can. Perfect. Um, so here we're here on the Rival Peak Facebook page. The first thing that you're going to notice is the Rival Speak TV show hosted by Will Wheaton that gets filmed every week based off of what the users do. So this is a very high quality, highly produced television show. We're using Mandalorian tech, which you're seeing in the background to produce it. And we take animations and characters and moments that the users have decided throughout that week and we put it into the TV show. This is the kind of main format that the show is built around. And then we have these live streams that are constantly going, that are always having people participating or streaming or interacting with it, um, and that we can play or change or impact. So you see me with a live stream here now. It's directly on Facebook. It's just a browser link, and it works on mobile. In fact, 96% of the audience is on iPhone or Android. And I'll talk more about the audience interactions right now. But what you're watching is live. So these are the characters. We're seeing their different streams. We can jump between different characters just by tapping on them. This character is looking at this underground city that they've just discovered. And we can help them. We can assist them. We can tell them what to do. We can take different votes, daily vote, make them fight each other to the death. Okay, sounds good. <laughs> we can contribute to the fan favorite, which is going to open up in a little moment. Um, but let me but let me just slow you down for a second. Of course. H help everyone understand why does the audience, I mean, obviously the people that are playing are playing for real money, correct? These are these are characters that have an incentive. They're trying to earn $10 million through the show, and that takes us through the narrative that's occurring. But the characters are all AI. I understand. But my point is, why does the viewer want to impact the outcome? Give us the rationale for like, why am I True. taking, why is a user taking an action to manipulate the ending of this in-process experience? Every contribution that you make, every moment that you watch, every interaction that you do, and I'll show you right now, um, I can read a dialogue here and at the bottom, it's gonna add 240. That contributes to the real-time score, the real-time points of what's happening for these characters. And there's something like 900 million points that have been generated for the show so far. It'll cross a billion very soon. Um, these points basically determine the entire outcome of the show. So your contribution, your tribute, actually affects what everybody else who's watching sees. So every little motion or interaction is recorded by us. And we use that to program this TV show to help write what's written here. Um, and so the users are collectively building and driving the outcome that you see. We cut off that user score, those user decisions on Friday night. We change the scripts. We record new animations and voice acting Saturday and Sunday. We film with Will on Monday. We do post on Tuesday and we lock in a new episode on Wednesday. And so the things that you do actually become part of the TV show that Will is acting alongside with you. Can you take us through sort of some of the things that um, that give the audience agency? And is there money exchanging hands here? Is there What's your business model in this sure. game? 
Absolutely. So I'll take you through some of the interactions that we have. You saw a few of them so far, which is to say you can make decisions for them. You can assist them in different tasks. They have to get warm in this case. That'll all contribute score. So each one of these AI has goals, nourishment, hydration, warmth, and social that you are helping to facilitate. The more that you help a specific character, the higher the chance that that character will win the show. And also the lower the chance that they will be eliminated from the show. We are at the end. So all of these characters have been eliminated so far. Uh, and we have these contribution aspects that will further assist the more that you kind of play little games alongside with these characters. So the entire, you know, kind of thinking is how can we help people make contributions, make decisions to the media that they're watching? And here we see different characters in different rooms and we can kind of make the choices that we want to make for where characters should go or how the show should take place. Now the, uh, the opportunity that you see here, the content that we've built is something that we built for Facebook. They are the client. This is a Facebook Watch original. Um, but the opportunity is much greater. So in this show, we are monetizing it primarily through ads because that's what Facebook system is about. But what the future enables is versions of this where the users are spending cash to make decisions, to make cheers, to make their name appear. And in the future, you could even do betting around that or you could enable trading of different elements about this. So we're starting by looking at how do people want to engage? Where do people want to engage? On what devices do they engage in? Getting that data. And then we're going to be bringing a variety of different video game like business models to this traditional media content. Can you give us um, any of the early KPIs from this? And, and I guess more broadly speaking, um, how much it costs to run a game like this? Sure. So uh, Rival Speak, which you're seeing here, is I think around 105 million views so far. We're going to be unveiling the minutes watched um, in a couple of weeks on it, but it's going to get over uh, the, um, it's going to be seven, uh, how many digits is that? That's a lot. It's like nine digits, million watches. It's very big. Uh, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I'm not able to do calculations in my head very, very well. Um, we've got millions of players. Uh, their top markets for the product are United States, India, interestingly enough, um, the Philippines, Mexico, uh, various countries in Europe. Um, in terms of top devices, it's like 85% Android, 12% iOS, and then just a little bit desktop. So it's very, very mobile centric. Um, and, you know, you heard very interesting countries that I mentioned. All of this works anywhere that, in this case, the Facebook platform works, because our software just runs off of traditional video streams. So people who are sitting and watching in India, any kind of Facebook page where a stream is running, our software can run on top of that. And, of course, as a provider, we're neutral. So uh, we provide tech to Twitch. We provide tech to YouTube. We provide tech to Facebook. Um, we also are invested into by Tencent's Huya streaming platform in China, which we're working with. We work on proprietary platforms too. So in this case, the product was built specifically for the Facebook audience, but that doesn't mean that it's limited to that, if that makes sense. Is the Android, sorry, go ahead, Walt. Is the Android iOS mix um, also, can you give us a sense of what that's like in the United States or is that 8515 kind of reflective of the, the fact that this is a very international product? It's very reflective of the fact that it's an international product. In the United States, it's a much higher iPhone mix. But when you work on platforms that are as global as um, Facebook, Facebook is, yeah. what you find is that people in India are using Android phones you've never heard of. They're not yes. Samsung models, I'll put it that way. Um, <laughs> when we when we operate on Twitch, for example, it's a very heavy desktop user base. Got like, it. Almost majority desktop. It's still majority mobile, but almost majority desktop. And so it's really the platform and the audience that differ. But we as a technology provider, because we provide software and solutions to enable this, work wherever they want to work and on any device that they want it to operate off of. You 
in this case, built and maintained this product for Facebook. Is that your, your business model always, or do you ha- does your technology allow third parties to build and operate games? So we're very similar to the game engine Unity, which is to say we provide a product, an SDK, that any developer can kind of download and build off of. And many of them will just build whatever kind of games they want off of it. So I'll show you a few right now. Um, this is one of my favorites. I'm just going to run some live streams um, where, you know, this developer built a, a mobile title and I'm streaming it here on Twitch. And, you know, they're all driving different cars and I'm able to affect what's happening. I didn't build this product. I, I In fact, I didn't build Rival Peak, right? That was built by Pipeworks Studio, the studio in, in Oregon. I basically built technology that allows the game developer to create the experience that you're seeing right now and allow me to do things like spawn a giant exploding pinata in the middle of the stream. I've always so, wanted to do that. That's been a highlight of my career. <laughs> it's fun, right? <laughs> so the, you know, the, the software basically enables people who want to create stuff for media broadcasts, sports broadcasts, video games to generate real-time very rich interactivity across any platform or infrastructure that they want with synchronization. So are- people really shouldn't think of you as an as a gaming company. People should think of you as a video content enabling, potentially a creator, but also as an enabler of entertainment content creation. Game is just one manifestation that you're showing us, but it really is far broader in terms of thinking across the entire entertainment universe. Exactly. In the same way that, you know, if you look at how Unity and Unreal Engine in particular are applied in sports these days where sure. they were creating fake crowds, sure. the application for interactivity over video is the unique selling point. And for me, you know, live real time video is only going to increase as a share of what people consume. And everyone expects interactivity these days. I have a almost four-year-old right now and when he goes up to the tv and he tries to tap it and it doesn't react to him he gets confused by that so we're working on a um confidential project for a client that we haven't announced yet they're an animation studio and we've taken some of their 11 minute episodes and we've made them interactive just through the stream themselves he was playing it on friday night just being our little qa tester and he kept asking for more he loved when the cartoon would stop and tell him to do something and he could change things. And then when he was done, it would continue. Um, it didn't happen to so, be a white, it wasn't a white lamp, was it by chance? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> it was not. Um, it was very agitational. I'll, I'll put it that way. It's fine. I'm just, I'm just busting your chops, but, but I want to step back because you, 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 you have up on the slide share or it's on the screen share. You have things that people know, obviously unreal engine unity, um, the natural question is like, well, why can't they do this, Jacob? Like, what, what, why is this your category versus theirs? And what is the seminal differences between, like, I've seen what Fortnite, a game could be used in Unreal, and then they turn it in and use it for Mandalorian. So, like, is this, is the interactive layer the main differentiator? And is that something that's just too difficult for them to add? Or, like, how do we think about what differentiates um, Genvid? I think of competition from the perspective of four different quadrants. The first quadrant is other startups. The second quadrant is platforms. The third quadrant is game developers. And the fourth quadrant is engines. So let's start with startups. When we were first fundraising, uh, a lot of the startups that were coming out in this time period, this is 2016, were trying to be interactive streaming platforms. So, you know, whether it is Caffeine or Beam that became Mixer, what they were getting funding for was build a Twitch competitor. And in fact, we got asked by a lot of investors, why don't you build a Twitch competitor? And our response was, well, two reasons. One, you have Facebook, Google, and Amazon all here with existing very popular platforms. And that seems like a fairly high hurdle um, to surpass. And the second answer was, I want to help facilitate new content creation. 
And so if I went back to my boss, which is the CEO of Square Enix, Matsuda-san, who I speak with quite regularly, and I'd say to him, hey, make a new Final Fantasy using my software. He'll say to me, how many users do you have? And I will say, well, we're a new platform. We're just starting. We've got zero. And that is a much harder argument to make than I will help facilitate you being on every popular platform in the world that you want to be on. Do you want to be on Twitch? Do you want to be on YouTube? Do you want to be on Facebook? I will get you there. The audience is already there and clamoring for your content. So we went down that route. And that's a very hard route for startups because getting game developers to use your software is not easy, which is to say games take years to make and then go on for another decade after you've built them. That's a very long time window. And so most startups are flash in the pan, as you know, and game developers are very hesitant to allow other people to put software on that their entire product's going to rely on. And so they have to trust you, they have to believe in the opportunity, and they have to believe that the risk and opportunity cost that they're taking to use your software, as opposed to doing things like VR or other options out there, are worth it. And that comes from the relationships that you have. I had a very special job at Square Enix. I was the head of BD for one of the biggest publishers in the world. I have that network. I have that relationship. I have that trust. Many of the people who are building companies out here didn't come from that. They came from music. They came from streaming. I mean, if you look at Twitch when it came out, my perspective as the person who was the first one to build a relationship with Twitch at Square Enix was, hey, these guys are making money off of our IP infringement. <laughs> and their response back to us was, it's great marketing. And so we kind of just let them without, you know, trying to do takedown notices. But that's the perspective that many publishers have when it comes to this. So what we wanted to look at was, hey, as a startup, we're going to use our relationships. We're going to use that trust that we've built. We're going to say to these publishers and these developers, we know what we're talking about. Believe in us. Work on it. And it's working. We've got 150 developers in various stages of funnel that are using our software around the world to build different types of game products with us. Um, so now we're also, uh, oh, go, go ahead. ahead. Sorry. No, no, go ahead. Keep going. We're, we're also used by half of the major tech companies. Uh, one of the major chipset ma manufacturers by multiple big media companies and so on and so forth. Like the, people need interactive video software um, and they need to trust that it's coming. Now there are other quadrants of competition, but I'm happy to answer your next question first. Yeah. Well, I was just going to say like, if I'm sitting at Facebook, you know, I, I've spent a lot of time with Ricky Van Veen and I've listened to Fiji and sort of even Cheryl has talked about sort of like, we don't want to just replicate what everyone else can do. Like anybody, you know, there's obviously a lot of players who are going out creating comedies and dramas and putting them up to be watched. We want to do stuff that is different, unique, and sort of takes advantage of the inherent interactivity and, you know, other parts of Facebook. So like they did Red Table Talks, which has, you know, ties into what they do on groups. And like, so I guess long-winded answer is like for Facebook, like this is, this doesn't really fall within Facebook gaming. Like this is part of how Facebook thinks about the future of, of video content. Is that a fair way of thinking about this? That is the absolute right way to think about it because this is a Facebook watch original. It's not a Facebook gaming original, right? We worked with Matthew Hannick and the video team about this because if you look about, if you look around this from the perspective of my industry, which is games, video is the less interactive path, <laughs> which is to say, look, we've got a giant market. It's fully interactive. It's very engaging and immersive. And it's the media people who are coming into the space and saying, well, we've got Bandersnatch, where do we go next? And so that, that opportunity for video, which is a very significant opportunity is to say, look, the average American watches like five hours of TV a day, right? And of that, maybe an hour is immersive Game of Thrones and the rest of it is reality shows and cooking and cleaning. How do we make that interactive? And what we wanna do is capture that market opportunity. Games are fundamentally immersive. Right? You can't move forward in Call of Duty unless you push the controller. You can't crush candy in Candy Crush unless you tap on the phone. That demands your attention. And so where is that opportunity for the people who want to be able to lean back and lean in at their leisure? And that, I think, is a huge opportunity for the media industry, but they have to go and take advantage of that. And in fact, that leads into that second kind of competition quadrant, which is the platforms, right? 
when we were first fundraising, well, what if Facebook does this or what if Twitch does this or what if YouTube does this? They do. Twitch has lots of APIs and SDKs. That's what they do. Um, Facebook has plenty of things too. There's a reason, one, that they license our software, which is the same reason that they didn't build a game engine, right? They could go. Amazon built a game engine. It didn't go very well. But, um, you know, the, at the end of the day, what you want is a developer base. And what developers want is neutrality, which is to say the following. Microsoft could go to me at Square Enix and say, here is a game engine. It is free. It only runs on Xbox. Would I take it? Never. Because I would be a fool to tie my entire business to them and not do so as part of, you know, some massive subsidy that they were giving me, right? Which is how the exclusives business work. And so why did Unreal and Unity grow over the last 15 years? Because the number of platforms grew and what developers want are platform neutral tools. So Twitch and YouTube and Facebook are never gonna build tools that allow interplay between their APIs and SDKs, but I'm the only interactive streaming platform in the world right now that you can write once and flip to wherever you want it to do. And I could, in five seconds, switch Rival Peak to Twitch. I'm not going to do that because I'm not allowed to do that. And also would not be as good an experience for a variety of reasons, which is to say, we built that for the ground up for the Facebook platform. We built that for their mobile support. We built that for their instant game support. It is beautiful and brilliant on their platform, right? You, you still build toward the platform strengths. But the reason that that developer chose us, Pipeworks chose us three years ago, was because we were the only platform neutral technology and their original prototype worked on Twitch, right? And so what you wanna do is be able to build that funnel and then in the same way that game consoles create, this is a better experience on PlayStation, or we're gonna have extra DLC on Xbox, you create incentives for developers to come to you. But if you don't do that, the thing that happens in the developer's head is, well, I'm only gonna build for Twitch. Twitch right now is 60% of the streaming market. That means I'll only ever get 60 cents in the dollar. And so I can't invest as high. And so that was the problem without platform neutral game engines. If you were gonna go and build a game exclusively for Sony and Sony was paying for it, it was fine. You only had to build those tools. The moment that you have to build for Sony, Xbox, PC, and potentially mobile titles, is the moment that none of those costs scale and you need a platform neutral vendor. So that's, I think that's how we deal Epic, with that. Epic and yeah. Unreal have shown us that there is a large opportunity out there to be a Switzerland as opposed exactly. to being directly tied to one. Walt, did you have a question? I just want to know, like, do you have any sense if, if, um, if uh, Facebook looks at this as, as something that's been successful? I have a very strong sense that they look at it as something that's been successful, but I can't go more into the details, but yes, um, they okay. love it. Um, and we're, you know, we're actively thinking about what that next bigger step is. So what, what are the, what would be the reasons that they would think something like this is successful? Generic. Well, they, they see the backend metrics of user engagement, right? The same thing that we see, which is to say it's sticky. People like it and it's, you know, taking advantage of every lever that their platform offers, which is how many systems on, out there, honestly, work on Android, iPhone, and desktop with live stream and VOD and game-like components out there. Yep. Did you know that inside of the game that I have, you can actually watch the TV show? Like literally there is everything inside of here. It's kind of bananas. So I, I can go inside here switch it to the home stream, load up will show. I can watch VOD inside of this game. I can play the game inside of this game shell. I can do whatever I want inside of however I want to operate it. Like it, it's pretty nuts. Got it. Yeah, sports betting is something that it seems like everyone wants to be uh, involved with these days. Is this, um, is this something that, that uh, is applicable to what you can provide? Oh, yes. I mean, it's really up to the users to decide what they want to do with it. In this case, the user is Facebook, right? They're the client. But if you're a media company and you want to go and take real-time kind of interaction over your, let's say, basketball game and add statistics to it and then let users have betting on top of that, right? totally possible. The, the, the way that I would look at it is possible as opposed to like, is it stuff you're you know pursuing in some fashion at the moment? 
let me put it this way, because the, the complexity of your question is, I provide the tools, but I don't need to build the betting in the same way that I don't need to build the game engine. Rival Peak is built off of Unity, right? I also support Unreal, Godot, Lumberyard, um, et cetera. And so I'm not going to go and build a betting platform. If I'm going to run something on Fox, they're going to use FoxBet, and that's going to be integrated, right? It, it, if I'm running something on NBC's platform, that's going to use whatever backend they've got you know, from them. If I'm running something on Facebook, it's whatever they want to use. I, I don't want to replace existing functionality that the majority of these places already have. I don't know if that answers your question directly, but in almost every Direct single enough, case yeah. that someone's, it, you know, we worked with a number of sports leagues and providers right now. All of them have existing deals and relationships. In some cases, those are exclusive. So for example, if you want to use certain sports data, you have to work with sports radar or genius, right? I'm not going to go and build a company that's going to replicate those data manufacturing efforts. And in many cases, those data places have the exclusive rights to do betting. And so, we but the interactive overlay is is what right. you're going to provide to help Precisely. enable the consumer experience to be much better and presumably lead to more bets taking place on platform, especially within games. Is well, that, that's 100. Well, and Go just because you bring it up, I'm well. I'm just thinking you you brought up Fox, and so I'm thinking like. Fox invested in this company, Caffeine, a few years ago, which was yeah. sort of going to be the mobile. Up, yeah. <laughs> no, it was going to be the mobile Twitch, right? I mean, that was sort of the pitch of Caffeine. And I think they've pivoted a bunch. But certainly a part of the story is integrating live content from Fox and then putting an overlay around it, Twitch-like, around it. It sounds like what you're talking about, like with with answering Qual's question is, is being more seamlessly integrated rather than sort of a watch experience being fully integrated with the actual linear broadcast. Is that the right way of distinguishing the two? You're so right about that. What I want to do is break that down into two absolutely critical nuances. The first one is if you're watching a linear broadcast today and they want you to do betting, they're typically sending you to a separate app. And I don't think that that is the experience that gets the most people engaged. So what I would want to do is, for example, on your smart television, I've got my overlay working on top of the broadcast, and you're just saying, hey, Alexa, put $50 on this player, right? And that's the way in which we're integrating it, and your TV is going to pop up with, you've got a $50 bet going. The second part of that nuance, right? So that's how we integrate the linear and the overlay to it. Second part of that nuance gets back to the question that was asked about caffeine just now. Um, they're building an entire separate platform that they've got to acquire users for. This was the challenge that I didn't want to deal with five years ago. I'm not going to try to do that on a separate platform. I'm going to do that on they Fox, need They, they need right? me to download an app called Caffeine. Correct. And then not just download it, but they need me to come back every day. Exactly. Exactly. And so what I'm saying is it's not going to be there. It's going to be in Fox's app, on Fox's channel, on NBC's app, or NBC's channel, right? It should be where the users are. You want to make Peacock or Discovery or Netflix or whoever, you want to make existing locations. You want to empower them just like- Or YouTube TV even, right? Yeah, so look, no different than Unreal Engine allowing Disney Plus to have the Mandalorian. Jacob wants to fish where the fish are rather than go out and try to get people to come to his new cool app. Exactly. I mean, the point is to provide technology for all of the media organizations that are clamoring for it and want to own their customer. What happens when you're trying to split it to a different platform is that platform is trying to take your customer away. And so the opportunity must be there to be a protocol for interactivity over video that will work on any and all of these media platforms that all of them are trying to build. To create a much better experience with the content that now exists. One that's exactly. more modernized as opposed to the same linear stream that we've seen on television for the last, you know, 70 years or whatever it's been, 60 years. I mean, Precisely. not that it was a good, not that it was a good experience last night, but like the Golden Globes, right? Um, imagine if there was a way for the audience to be sort of, you know, while the, while the trailers are playing or while that you're live experiencing and you know, you're, you're thinking who's going to win. And then you see live results versus what the audience thought. Like there's so much that could be innovated on to make the experience more interactive, engaging, which feels like table stakes in 2021, but yet hasn't happened. 
and it hasn't happened. And you would be surprised. In many cases, it hasn't happened because they haven't had the technology to do so. And most of these places are very, very happy to use standard live streaming technologies that are out there, standard interactivity technologies that are out there, standard game engines that are out there. Why? Because if you are tasked internally with building something right now, you could spend the next three years doing it and miss out on the entire technology curve, or you're probably getting the pressure from your CEO saying, hey, we got to get something up this year. You'll never do it internally and you'll never scale it internally, right? And it's only going to grow from there. So, you know, there's still shows like The Bachelor or The Bachelorette that still, if you look at linear TV, still command very large ratings, like actually matter and, and are still, you know, they're not what they used to be, but Survivor, you can go through the list. When I look at what you just showed off in your demo, like I can't help but think that like, we're not that far away from this, you know, those types of reality TV playing out inside of GenVid. Like, is that, is that crazy? Like how far away are we from what that experience feels like to that? Almost this year, I would say, based off of the way that I see things going, they won't be full produced real person reality TV shows yet, but you're going to see media companies using us for non-video game software where there's going to be user-based interactivity that's going to make decisions on what happens. And those are going to come out really, really soon. Without naming somebody, could you give us an example of what that might feel like? Just so we can contextualize it, because I don't know what that means. What you just said, a bunch of words, I have no idea exactly what that means. Sure. So imagine you've got a, um, a live stream of, let's say it's a TV show. It's not going to be a TV show, but let's say it's a TV show. And you as the users are determining what's going to happen in the next three minutes, cheering for it, chatting with the rest of the users that's what's happening, um, playing little games alongside of it that's going to affect the content that appears next, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And we've got like an AI director that is then going and sending the commands as to how we're going to queue up based off of the user's next interactions. It looks a little bit like what you just saw in Rival Peak in terms of a video game, but we're using traditional linear content and then kind of you know moving it block by block instead of um, you know real-time video game engine backend. And is it animated or we're actually talking about changing the actions of actual live actors and actresses? In this case, we've got predetermined content that was filmed with real actors and actresses. And the viewers are deciding, you know, what of that predetermined content should come next. Got it. Think of it like a mass community played Bandersnatch in that way. <laughs> Awesome. But, but the next step, theoretically, is actually affecting what happens next. Like, you know, shows are taped weekly. There's no reason why this type of engagement couldn't actually inform what happened. I mean, writers that, are working like, do. like it does on Rival Peak, essentially. On Rival Peak, only right. exactly. Instead of NPCs, it's like it's real but, actors. Well, J Jacob said he sits down on Saturday and the writer's room figures out the, the script for that weekend. Exactly. There's no reason why, and again, I'm going to bastardize this, but like, there's no reason why The Bachelor or even This Is Us, there couldn't be audience interaction that figures out how the next week's episode evolves. That, that's exactly it. And what I would highlight is the biggest production hurdle is the fact that right now they have this massive leisure of time when it comes to editing reality TV. Like they film those things months in advance, right? And then you just spend a lot of time editing and cutting it. They're not oriented toward doing things to that live perspective. But even with Facebook, that's we a, were dealing with that, right? Like point. they they are used to getting episodes weeks and weeks in advance. And we had to build a production process with them, which was almost like live television, but not at the same level because we're 24-7 always on, right, with these streams. And so they had to build a production process with turnaround times, legal and SNP reviews within hours on Tuesday to let us go live on Wednesday. Right. So that's the challenge for like, a, I mean, I'm going to say NBC, for example, but like this exactly. is not the workflow that NBC for The Voice or This Is Us, like this is just not how they historically are organized. That said, if they want to lean into the future, they don't have a choice. Like if, if you want to make it choice. more, if you say that you want the content to be more engaging, this is going to be table stakes for what the new world looks like, which is reorienting 
the production process. Exactly. And that, that's the number one challenge that I have faced. I can bring you the interactive tech and we can have discussions on amazing designs, but unless you're willing to adjust the way in which you produce that content to take in interactions in a way that feels meaningful, the audience well, it, is smart. Right? Well, it also brings up another it. issue that Walt has been kind of having his own internal mental battle over, which is whether episodes should air all together or week to week. Like he's actually been enjoying that WandaVision. Originally, he thought WandaVision should be all at once. And now he's sort of into the week to week. By the way, I'm four episodes in. I love it. Um, it's great. But but the point is. It brings know, back he, the importance of life. Correct. Yeah, exactly. Period. Right. Period. Which I think well, ad- advertisers <laughs> really would welcome. But, but, the, but Jacob's point is you can't do this pre-recorded. You can only, yeah. yes, you can multiply tape different outcomes and do a mass bandersnatch. But in order to really create the experience, it has to be done week to week in a live world. Exactly. And so what I just described with the mass bandersnatch is only because that's what, that's the production process they have right now. And I'm limited right. to it. And it's, it's not the most compelling, but it is baby steps. You have to understand, if you look at the interactive to linear spectrum, the game developers have been doing live interaction input since the beginning of Pong, right? And the media companies haven't had to do this. And the people who know how to make games and understand game loops and understand interactions are always going to be ahead of that game. So if they really want to compete with people's attention, with things like Fortnite, you're not going to make games again because at that point you're just a game publisher, but you have to learn how interactivity works. And that's always going to come from taking a production process where interactivity is meaningful. And that comes from life. Essentially you're marrying the worlds of game studios and LA. Exactly. Right. And I, I feel like game studios don't really understand linear enough to build real linear experiences and those who are building linear experiences don't understand interactivity and there's a place for marrying the two to kind of sum it up and you're you're, you know you're right and what i want to add to this that i think is critical and i apologize for interrupting that's okay technology only gets you so far at some point you need to have somebody with a very strong vision on what this is going to look like and who pushes through it. So that's the reason that I'm the executive producer on Rival Peak, not because that's what I want to do as a living necessarily. I (laughs) want to run my technology company. But imagine if you go to painters and you say, you are all really good at doing these wonderful still lifes. Now I want you to do an impressionist painting. Until you have painted an impressionist painting that exists in your head, they won't know how to do it. And so you have to paint a whole couple of them so they can see this is what it should look like. This is how you should apply it. And then really good painters will start to learn. They will never create exactly what you're creating, but you're not looking for them to do that. You're just looking to help inspire people who want to do that to create something new. And so you must start by artificially pumping that well. And that's what we're doing with Rival Peak and a number of the projects that we're working on. We do so only when there are clients that want us to, which is to say Facebook and many of the others who you know, help pay us to build these experiences, effectively subsidize their creation of it. But we learn, we get data, we help that platform understand what's going to happen next. And they use that data to invest into the next next generation of content, which is going to be far more compelling. So let's just say tomorrow, Paramount Plus comes up to you and says, Jacob, we want to do a massive project with you for the next Star Trek. And we want to do something really cool and interactive. And then you go, well, Star Trek is going to be distributed on Paramount Plus, which is going to be on 10 different TV manufacturers, Roku boxes, Amazon Fireboxes, Chromecasts. Can you work and what you do work anywhere? Like how challenging would be the, like obviously this works really well on a desktop or you said on a mobile device, but can it work across the entire array of IP devices where I watch video? We have stuff working on Roku and interactive TV devices today. There is no technical challenge to get it on there. That's mostly an app update. The biggest issue is input, right? You're mostly limited to a remote, which has very simplistic input. And so that's why I gave the example of Alexa. 
I'm more interested in using voice for that input. So Alexa, you know, vote for this. Alexa, pop up this, and that's going to pop up instantly on your television. Me as a technology provider, that overlay that you see is metadata coming from my servers that is synchronized to the video that you're watching. As long as I've got the video time code, doesn't matter to me where I'm putting it. As long as the device has the ability to process very simple overlay, which these days the majority of smart TVs and Apple TVs and Chromecast do, won't be an issue there. And so what I would do is your voice will go to an Alexa server, that Alexa server will send the data to mine. My server will recognize because you've linked your Alexa account to the same account that you're doing here, like they're all connected to the same Paramount Plus account. And so I'll know, this is Rich's Alexa, Rich's Alexa is telling me this, therefore on Rich's television, pop up this. And that's how we make that entire interactive loop work. And so the answer is yes, it can work. It takes people who are ambitious to want to do it. Right. Sorry, Brandon, all, all you. Oh, that's okay. I figure uh, you're, a you're a thought leader on video games in general, especially with your experience. I think there's probably not a lot of people that know that you co-wrote um, the sort of metaverse treatise with Matt Ball that so many people have read. So I, I wanted to ask you some questions on the games business in general. And I think a natural segue here from what you're doing is into cloud games and wanted to get your take on what cloud, the shape that cloud games takes over time. And it is what Stadia and Amazon Luna do enough to make a real use case for cloud gaming or is there something brand new that can be unlocked in, in the My cloud? My favorite question. So oh, this is the thing that I go I the it. most uh, <laughs> into. So yeah, Matt, Matt I saw I you did. gearing up as I asked. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. Um, Matt and I wrote a very, very, very long piece on cloud games um, that I, I recommend people read because I don't have the three hours it's going to take to get into it. But I, I am one of the few people in the world that has spent a decade working on games that run on cloud. If you look at Rival Peak, there are 13 streams all connected to a single AI simulation. Unless in your home, you have 14 GPUs, including a very powerful GPU to run an AI sim, you cannot run Rival Peak at home. It can only exist as a stream. And we have always theorized that this stuff was possible. I prototyped a lot of it seven, eight years ago at Square Enix. And it is capable of being done now. But what has happened is the same mistakes that happened with what we'll call Cloud 1.0 12 years ago, when OnLive and Gaikai were first coming out and are being repeated by Stadia and Luna today, are business model mistakes. They are going in there saying, hey, the opportunity for cloud gaming is you don't have to pay for the cost of hardware anymore. And therefore, a massive market is going to open up. Right? Imagine if you didn't have to buy an Xbox, how many billions of gamers would happen? And it turned out that there wasn't, right? And why? Because if you're willing to play really immersive AAA content, the cost of a console these days is not that expensive, right? And Straw Selnick, when he was being interviewed last year after Stadia didn't do particularly well, said it you know, quite eloquently. He said, I don't think that there are people out there who wanted to play Red Dead Redemption, but went, nah, I don't want to buy a console. Like, I'm willing to spend 60 bucks on a game, but that console thing, that's not for me. Put it another way. My parents have had an Xbox in their house for 15, 20 years. They've had a Nintendo in their house in almost the 38 years that I've been alive, right? Like, for the few years that Nintendo, Nintendo didn't exist <laughs> between 82 and 85. Does it still, does it still have cartridges? Like yes. And it still has cartridges. They're there. They have never turned it on. And they've oh. never turned it on, not because they didn't have access to the hardware, but because they don't care about it. And so people who want are they to still paying the Are they still paying the $5 monthly online fee to Microsoft probably still? It's attached to my credit card these days, but they've got <laughs> access to it. You know, if they really want to spin up Halo 4, they could go ahead and do so, or Halo Reach or Halo 3. They're all there in their house, but they're not doing it because... That's not their thing. That's not the market. And so if you look at the real big market for games and mobile, what kind of games evolved? Simple Candy Crush-like things, social things. 
not because the chipset here can't handle it. The chips here, here can do really amazing stuff. You can attach a controller to this. You could play the latest Final Fantasy on it if you wanted to. They don't do it because the audience isn't that interested in it. And so at the end of the day, the real opportunity is to come in and say, you know what cloud can do? Cloud can give you instant streams that are always available. They will allow you to generate really compelling experiences using AI or physics. And it'll work in somebody's house in India or in Argentina. And you don't have to do anything about it. And that is exactly what Rival Peak was prototyping. The stuff that you saw on that back end, the image that is behind Rich right now, that um, control room that they've just uncovered, where they're seeing that all of their streams are secretly streaming to Facebook. That's actually what's happening inside of the sim today. That stuff didn't exist on December 2nd when we went live. Those assets weren't created. No user has ever downloaded them. They have never been patched. We just updated on the server and it streams to you live and in real time. That is the entire promise of cloud. But what is the market for it? It's going to be people who want to interact with media because if they want to play a game, they'll go play a game, right? If I want to go shoot people in Fortnite, I'm going to do that. But what I want to do when I'm not doing Fortnite, I want to kind of engage with content. What do I want to do when I'm not watching Game of Thrones? I mostly throw on Top Chef. Because that's my thing. I just leave it on the background while I'm working, right? And if I had the ability to engage or affect, if I had the ability to help kind of choose which top chef should win, and I had that real-time interaction with the community, I would engage more and more and more. So I don't know where this is going to go. I would refer to Rival Peak as our ingress. And I think that that next thing, that Pokemon Go, is going to be what really blows it up. And so if you marry that with a huge IP, that's the kind of opportunities that we're looking at right now. So Brandon loves to use this term metaverse. It's building blocks <laughs> of the metaverse. <laughs> building. So um, let me just considering that, um, is it going to be winner take all between epics or Roblox or, or Minecraft? Like how's that going to play out? You're going to see a massive expansion of opportunity for all of these companies. So I don't think that it becomes winner take all. I think that it's just a question of what, products have the experiences you want to engage in in the same way that i jump between disney plus hulu and netflix today right and then you'll have smaller platforms and bigger ones the one thing that i'll you know point out here is if you look at roblox and you look at fortnite those are platforms right they are things where people can create content and experiences there are only ever going to be so many platforms out there but I would delineate Roblox from Fortnite, at least so far. And I know this is going to change. There's creative, I know what you're going to say. Right. But yeah. I mean, I just, I look at Roblox and go, I know, you know, there's four, five games that are dominating time spent, but my daughter believes that she can create a game on Roblox and become famous, right? Like that is the, just like YouTube, that like anybody can basically create content and become famous. And that's obviously a very different universe than professional game creators, the way sort of an Epic is doing, at least so far. You're exactly right. And the way that I would look at it is, again, from the perspective of platforms, the kind of content I would create for a Twitch audience isn't necessarily the kind of content I would create for a Facebook or for a YouTube audience. And some are older, some are more mature, some are more immersive, some are more detailed and core. If I was going to go build a rival peak for the Twitch audience, it would have a lot more deep interactivity and probably all of the cannibalism and murder that were in the original version of it, right? <laughs> so what, what, what we did with Facebook was the request that came from them, which was, hey, make it into an interactive fishbowl, you know, that was very diverse and global and worldwide. And so in the same way that the kind of content that your daughter can create on Roblox is very different than the kind of content that people would professionally create with the Unreal Engine, depending on the platform, the place you want to be, I, I don't think that they necessarily compete directly for everything, only on certain layers. Right. So are you excited about Roblox being public and sort of, I mean, they laid out a pretty bold vision last week of what they want to do. I've created similar experiences at Square Enix and they didn't go well. And the reason that they didn't go well is the same reason that Roblox is very strong, which is to say you have a double network effect that is required to make that platform successful. You must have the network effect of customers and you must have the network effect of developers. And if you don't have both of those spinning, it's the same reason that there aren't many YouTube competitors out there right now, right? The users go where the content is, the content goes where the users are, and both of those 
push up that funnel. So Roblox uh, is only and, I, and I would even go the advertisers or, or the brands are in there too, because exactly. that's where you actually can get eyeballs and then the creators can make money. So it's sort of multiple wheels all spinning together. Precisely. And I don't think that there are going to be many competitors here because most of them are not going to be able to get that double network effect spin up properly for the same reason that it's difficult for a platform like Caffeine to pull eyeballs away from YouTube. You've got to do both. The other thing that I would add here is that if you look at the way that Roblox sees the world and opportunity, they have the ability to give creators greater and greater tools. And so the moment that they actually start to give better rendering tools and deep code access, they're starting to compete with Unreal Engine on the Unreal Engine basis, right? And so that's the layer of competition that people aren't really seeing that's a potential for Roblox is that kind of no-code Unreal Engine, but Tim Sweeney sees it, which is the reason that he bought T Twin Engine and the reason that he's turning Fortnite into Fortnite Creative and facilitating that. So, you know, the platform holders, they understand where this business is going, but this is the same reason that, for example, it doesn't make sense for a Disney to make a YouTube or for... Uh, NBC to make a YouTube, right? I don't. Well, I, I, just just to be clear, I mean, I I am a steward of history, <laughs> and I still remember when Comcast launched their U, UGC competitor uh, <laughs> and and tried to basically be YouTube. I mean, it is. I wrote about it. I remember it. I know the Comcast team does, and it was a zero. Right, because at the end of the day, what is the benefit of being that kind of media company? You have intellectual property. Do I want to go and be a YouTuber who only makes Star Wars stories? Maybe, but that audience is a fragment of the audience of the massiveness of whatever YouTube is, right? And so it, it, the opportunity for IP holders is very different than the opportunity for platforms by necessity of what the platform model is, which is free creation on any type of format. Because of these platforms, to what extent does video game creation become democratized? I think that far more significant than what it is that we see today. Like the ability for my child to start creating things that I could only have dreamed of back when people were modding, right? When I was 12 or, or 13 is night and day difference. We're going to see significantly more careers than are even being made now out of this for people who are just creating amazing interactive stuff. But th the way that I would look at this is, not just that they have the opportunity to become great creators on the platform, but that they will get the skill set that is required to make great interactive media in the future. What does it take to be a great game designer? Someone who understands loops, understands user patterns, and then can take those user patterns and apply them into the media format that you're generating. And the more that they understand, hey, I may be 12, but users are using it. What do they like versus what they don't like? And then are able to iterate on that the better designer they're going to become, the better media creator they're going to be when they graduate from college. I guess we don't have much time left, but I just want to get a quick um, thoughts on Apple versus Epic. Um, how do you think that, was, that, that whole battle is going to play out? I'm very passionate about this topic. I am thrilled that Epic actually took up the case here because <laughs> I'm sure. I think that somebody had to, but at the same time, I also think it's a very difficult argument to make, yep. which is to say, if you look at the entirety of the game industry, the iPhone is a very small part of it. The proof in point is the fact that Fortnite is still making all the money that it's making without iPhone. And so I understand why they're arguing for Monopoly. I want a more freer app store. But if I was the judge and I was the government, I would say that's Apple's hardware. There's still a minority of the hardware out there in the world. There are a minority of money in your ecosystem. I'm not really sure how you argue for the fact that they are a monopoly of operating system on their own device, which is a minority of devices. But I'm glad they're doing it and they can thread that needle. <laughs> it's better for all of us. So thank right. you, Tim. But I think Cook's digging in his heels. So unless you're, you're yeah. on the right side of the argument, you're just wasting legal dollars. Yes, it's the fortune of still being in con control of your company. <laughs> <laughs> Jacob, thank I think you. Think you could so do that if they were public. Thank you. <laughs> thank you so much for your time and your thoughtfulness, and we look forward to seeing what comes next with Genvid. Awesome, and I the, love it. Thank and and the final, the final of Rival Peak is Wednesday. Wednesday, six p.m. It's going to be really amazing. Like I'm super excited for it. We've got another Star Trek actor who's doing a voice on it. The first time that he and Will Wheaton are connected, so you know it's going to be a lot of fun. 
And when the statistics come out about this, we'll also recirculate the replay. I think it'll be a great opportunity to, to basically highlight to people just how big this was for you and Facebook. Yeah, appreciate it. And thank you guys very much. Thanks so much. Thanks. Thanks.